Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello, and thank you for joining us on another edition of the Space Nuts podcast, episode 172. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host, if you're joining us for the first time. If you're joining us for the 172nd time, I'm sorry I've said my name 172 times. And with me, as always, for the 172nd time is Professor Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. Hey, how are you doing, Andrew? I'm good. The question is, how are you, you jet-lagged fool? <laughs> <laughs> Not sure. Bits of me are still somewhere in the Indian Ocean, I think. But yeah. um, you know, uh, most of most of me is here. Yeah, well, um, how was your trip? The, the bit that's here is the grumpy bit. So <laughs> that's always the bit that gets home first. Yes. <laughs> now, where did you go? Uh, oh, so I was. I had a week in uh, in Munich, or in a small town near Munich called Garching, um, which is where the European Southern Observatory has its headquarters. So there's a very um, pretty impressive. Uh, headquarters building and you know other other things there as well as a rather marvelous planetarium the supernova planetarium which was only opened last year and so that's got an exhibition in it if anybody's ever in munich uh, and interested in astronomy that is definitely the place to go it's a sensational exhibition uh, the planetarium itself has got a state-of-the-art projector in it um, very very good so i was at a conference there talking about education in astronomy which um, you know was is something close to my heart and yours too mm. and then i had uh, the weekend in rome um oh how horrible for you uh, it, it was actually because I spent most of the time in my hotel room preparing my talk for Monday night at the Australian Embassy, uh, <laughs> where I had a I had a, an engagement there. In fact, I had a lovely day of meetings at, uh, at various very interesting organisations like the Italian Space Agency, ENAF, the headquarters of the Italian Astronomy Research uh, um, uh, Organisation, also um, a company. Uh, called Telespazio, which is a company that does a lot with uh, with the space agency there. And they do some amazing things on Earth observations and things of that sort. And wound up with the Nuclear Physics Research Institute, where they're, they're actually collaborating with scientists here in Australia, uh, in Melbourne, to, to build a, 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 a dark matter detector in a, in a disused mine at a place called Stoyle. Uh, which is between, I think, between uh, Melbourne and Ballarat. Mm. So all that uh, was very interesting. But another highlight, which um, would really only be of any interest to Australian listeners, I think, is that on Sunday morning, I was at a memorial service, um, not in the Vatican, but not very far away, for Tim Fisher, uh, the, the former Prime, Deputy, Deputy Prime, Prime Minister of Australia, yeah. well, who... Amazing bloke. I, I met him a couple of times, interviewed him a couple of times over the years. I have never come across a politician who genuinely came across as a as a true gentleman. That he, he stood 
head and shoulders above um, so many people in in such a, a, a ruthless game as politics. And, yeah. um, I, I, you know, he just, he just always seemed like your best mate. He was just a fabulous, fabulous guy. Yes, he's somebody I was very sorry uh, never to have met because I would love to have talked about trains with him because he was a train enthusiast oh, as well. Yeah, he loved uh, his trains. Yeah, that's right. But he, um, it, towards the end of his life, he was actually the Australian ambassador to the Holy See, mm. Uh, which is why there was a memorial service for him in, in Rome. And so it was an honour to have uh, been invited to attend that and as a guest, actually, of the, the present ambassador uh, to the Holy See. So that was that was very good and very uh, very moving and, you know, very appropriate. Very fitting, yeah. To, yes, very fitting for a great man. He was a great man. Yeah, quite an honourable bloke. Mm. Uh, now, um, speaking of the Australian government, one of the things we'll be talking about today is Australia's gift to NASA, which has gone down like a lead balloon in the local media, I might add. Uh, we, we've previously talked about Tabby's star uh, and the mystery surrounding the reason that it sort of dims and then doesn't and then it dims again, and uh, now they have a theory. We yep. also look at uh, Venus... Could it have once been habitable and what went wrong? I suspect uh, the, the, um, the, the occupants of Venus uh, burnt fossil fuels for a couple of hundred years and then all hell broke loose. Not that that's going to happen here. And we'll answer some questions about gamma ray bursts, gravitational waves and their effect on atomic clocks and um, whether or not a blue shift indicates a universal collapse. Somebody's got plenty of spare time or is just really, really worried about the future. Uh, we'll get on to all of those very, very soon. But um, what have we given to NASA, Fred? Oh, it's well, it, it's that's the interesting bit, because, uh, yes, it's a it's a gift to NASA of $150 million uh, spread over five years from the Australian government via the Australian Space Agency to support NASA's plans for uh, trips to Mars in, in the end. Uh, and, uh, of course, the moon as well, which is a, regarded as a stepping stone to Mars. Um, however, it's interestingly, you know, it, yes, it's a gift to NASA, but really it's a gift to Australia because the deal, I think, means that um, most of that money will probably come back to Australian industry. Uh, so it's, it's all about uh, engaging Australian in industry to support uh, to support. NASA with technology and with um, you know some of the some of the ideas that are needed to, to to bring about exploration in NASA. There's a headline I read today about um, some of the the autonomous vehicles that are used in the mining industry mm. have you know they've got characteristics that might be useful uh, in in de uh, developing vehicles that might be able to explore Mars. I mean, NASA's got a pretty good track record on that with three very successful rovers. In fact, four, if you include, I think it was Pathfinder. As against India, um, but, you know, that's another story. Well, yeah, yeah. But no, that's right. I mean, I, I think uh, I, I think it's a, an interesting area of of research, and I think it, I think it is actually a good thing that uh, that we, we in Australia are uh, visibly supporting NASA's um, you know, NASA's work in that. It is, of course, only 0.7 of a percent of NASA's annual budget that we've given to them, but that's all right. That's still going to make a difference. <laughs> of course. Uh, and, of course, you know, the, the, the negative uh, press that sort of uh, came along with this announcement um, is obviously based on, on very narrow 
focus. You know, why aren't you putting that money into the drought instead, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, you know, we've got to be there for the future. Yeah. We've got to be involved in space travel and space exploration and space industry. Uh, otherwise, we're going to be a very lonely country in, in the long-term future. So, mm. uh, it, and, and, you know, in the scheme of things, $150 million, not a lot out of our budget either. <clears throat> I, I think one of the, uh, you know, one, one, of, one of the telling statements came from Andy Thomas, uh, Australia's uh, first astronaut. Actually, he's not, he wasn't Australia's first astronaut, but uh, that was Paul Scully Power, but uh, a, a well-known Australian astronaut, now retired. And Andy made the point that, you know, he's been a big supporter of the Australian Space a Agency, uh, was instrumental in getting it going, instrumental in um, the fact that it's moving, it's going to be based, uh, its permanent base will be in Adelaide. It's currently based in Canberra, but will move to Adelaide probably around the end of the year. But he, his comment was, it's great to see the space industry, uh, sorry, the space agency engaging with human space flight, because most of what we do in Australia in the space, you know, in terms of uh, space presence is about uh, scientific and industrial applications, but not necessarily human spaceflight, whereas this is definitely uh, directed towards that goal. So it, it's expanding the, you know, the, the horizons of the space agency in, I think, quite a good way. Mm, good stuff. All right. Yeah. Now, let's move on to Tabby's star. We've talked about Tabby's star before. It's an unusual situation because it has this, uh, un this, this strange habit of dimming and they haven't really been able to understand why. Now, this is a star we've known about for a long time, but now they seem to have come up with a possibility as to what the answer is here, Fred. Yeah, that's right. Some some work that, you know, that goes, uh, uh, perhaps puts a, another uh, block of stone in the edifice of our understanding of this object. Uh, we should give it its proper name, which is KICA four six two eight five two. You just uh, love doing that to me. <laughs> yeah, only when it's written down in front of me. <laughs> um, it, often known as uh, Boyajian Star. I'm not sure whether I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, but uh, it was Tabitha Boyajian who noted the, uh, you know, the uh, the curious behaviour of this star, which is. Uh, Basically, on, uh, I mean, it's very un unusual fluctuations in its light. So it, it, it came out originally from the, the Kepler Space Telescope program, which was looking for the dimming of stars caused by planets passing in front of their parent stars. And we, as you and I have spoken about many times before, that's netted the current total of just over four, uh, many of the current total of just over 4,000 known planets around other stars. There are other ways of detecting them, but the so-called transit method, which is what Kepler has done, actually is the one that has been the most productive. It's been an eminently successful uh, way of detecting planets, and Ke Kepler now has uh, a follow-up mission called TESS, which is doing a similar job on in the whole sky. So Tabby's star is in the constellation of Cygnus. It's about uh, it's getting on for 1,500 light years away as the crow flies, so it's not a, not a nearby star. But what marked it out was these very unusual fluctuations in its brightness, not the kind of thing that you would get from a planet passing in front of it, uh, which would 
you know, a Jupiter-sized planet passing in front of the sun drops its light by 1%. So uh, the, the, this that's the typical sort of thing that you're looking for when you're looking for extrasolar planets. But uh, Tabby's star drops it by up to 22%, yeah. um, which is huge. And... Uh, does it in a peculiar way? It's well, not. It's, a, not a, it's not a planet, is it? It's planets aren't blocking the light. That's something is blocking the light, but um, but not planets. Uh, and and I think um, my recollections, are looking at previous work on Tabby Star, that there is a sort of quasi periodicity. Um, by that I mean that uh, you know that the the the, the dims in, drops in brightness, whilst they're not strictly periodic. By that I mean with a regular frequency. They they sort of that they're they're vaguely periodic. Can I put it that way? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, although they vary, that I think the twenty two percent one was a, a one off. Um, and the other thing is that uh, um, astronomers have looked at measurements of the brightness of this star over very long periods of time because what you can do when you know that you've got something interesting there you can go back to archival photographic plates taken over the last hundred years or so and look at how its brightness uh, uh, has changed uh, if it has or how its how how its brightness has held up and it turns out that this this star has faded in brightness by I think it's 14 percent over about the last hundred years and that in itself is a curious uh, a curious phenomenon that doesn't really seem to be explained by the astrophysics of the star itself which is uh, actually a, a, a similar star to the sun it's actually an f-type star okay. sun's a g-type star but it's it's similar you know a similar type of star so people have proposed all kinds of things like swarms of comets um, one that I think you and I might have talked about is the uh, possibility of a Dyson sphere being erected around the, the star. A Dyson sphere is a hypothesized edifice that's put um, put around a star by an alien civilization to collect all the light, yep. uh, all the energy from the star. So that, that was another suggestion. Um, I think that's probably at the far end of the, of the uh, hypotheses. Um, it's... It's um, only now, though, that uh, I think a reasonably coherent picture of what might be going on has been put forward. And it's come from a group of astronomers uh, who, if I remember rightly, let me just check where they are. Uh, They are at Columbia University, which is an interesting place because they're they're going to be the publishers of of my new book when it comes out in the United States, just as a plug there. Why not? Exploding stars and um, and invisible planets. It's not called that in Australia, but that's all right. Uh, so astronomers at Columbia University have built this model of what would happen if you had not a planet in orbit around the star, but um, the moon of a planet that has been pulled away from its parent planet by the star's gravity and is being destroyed, basically, by the star. And it turns out that the... Uh, all the numbers add up if you've got this situation that this this uh, basically you've got a a moon that is falling to pieces it's evaporating uh, and the kinds of dimming of the parent star that you see match what you would get from this model so it it sounds like um, a fairly uh, complicated construction the the theory that's led to this Uh, but um, it seems to be that it does fit all the pieces. Actually, one of the authors says um, 
let me just say he's actually uh, one of one of the uh, one of the author, uh, one of the researchers working on this. Uh, it says the team's model is unique in its hypothesis of what drives the original planet towards the star in the first place. So there's, the planet itself is also being disrupted. Mm. And it naturally results in the orphaned exomoons ending up on highly eccentric, which means elongated, orbits with precisely the properties previous research had shown were needed to explain the dimming of Tabby's star. Um, no, other, no other previous model was able to pull all these pieces together. So this model, for all it seems a bit contrived, actually fits the data. Yeah. And that you know that's that's the good thing about it so it suggests that uh, it's you know this this exomoons uh, and an exomoon of course is a is a moon around an exoplanet a planet around another star it's got this dusty outer layer of ice gas and perhaps carbonaceous rock as well uh, and and basically this is all forming a disk around Tabby's star and giving us these peculiar variations in brightness, including, um, as the dust builds up, a dimming of the star itself uh, over a long period of time. Mm, yeah, so uh, and yeah, as the dust thickens, the, the light um, gets held back bit by bit by bit, and, yeah, it, it reduces the, the amount of light we detect. Yeah, it, ma- it makes perfect sense. It's a simple explanation in the end of things, isn't it? Um, yeah, that's always, you know, you always apply what's called Occam's razor, which is to make the simplest explanation possible. And whilst this is a complex one, it's nevertheless simpler than what we've had already. Yes, indeed. <laughs> All right. Um, well, I'm, I'm sure there'll be more to learn um, once they uh, they get the data together on uh, Tabby's star. But it does sound like they're, they're right on the money with the, with the explanation. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with, of course, Professor Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by TechRadar. This is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years, and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons, and there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked and a couple of years down the track honestly can't complain their interface is very easy to use their their service is second to none uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do and they were brilliant so you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all it's all about privacy uh, do you really want big tech companies governments and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity. Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, Now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, So protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash space 
for three months free with a one-year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more, and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now, back to the show. Roger, you're live here also. Space Nuts. Now, before we move on to the next topic, Fred, just a, another shout-out uh, to say thank you to our patrons. Uh, we're getting uh, more and more people signing up to Patreon to support Space Nuts. We so much appreciate that. And, of course, as a patron, uh, you will uh, have access to um, the commercial-free version of the show. I know some people get that anyway. It depends what part of the world you're in. But um, that's one of the benefits, and we're, we're slowly putting together other benefits, which we will uh, let you know about down the track. So um, thank you for signing up to Patreon. Uh, you can do that if you would like to support the program at patreon.com slash space nuts. As I've said before, it's not mandatory. We're not going to uh, crack you over the head if you don't. Uh, it is a certain, um, you know, it's, it's certainly uh, an option and uh, it's totally up to you. But um, yeah, thank you to everybody who has supported us through patreon.com slash space nuts. It, uh, it won't go unnoticed and uh, we really appreciate your support. Now, uh, Fred, we are going to talk about the planet Venus. Now, this is a place that's uh, hideously warm, uh, has got an outrageously out-of-control uh, greenhouse effect going on, but now a new study suggests that at some stage in its deep, dark past, it may have been habitable and some, uh, until something horrible went wrong. I'm thinking, you know, inhabitants burning fossil fuels, but I could be wrong about that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, what's, what's the story behind this? This is fascinating. It is. It's, uh, it's some very interesting modelling of, um, of uh, Venus that has been done uh, with some, as you said, some quite surprising results. So, yes, Venus is closer to the sun than we are, um, but <clears throat> that is not the full story when it comes to explaining why Venus is so much hotter than the Earth, because with a surface temperature in the region of 450 degrees Celsius, it is quite a lot hotter than the Earth is. Um, and it, it, that's all about the, the, the greenhouse uh, environment that, <coughs> that Venus is in, in other words, its atmosphere. So Venus's atmosphere, like the Earth, has nitrogen in it, but uh, is also richer, richer in carbon dioxide than the Earth's. And so it traps the heat and the surface temperature rises enormously. And that then comes with all kinds of very peculiar effects on the atmosphere. Uh, things like the sulfuric acid drizzle that happens at high, high layers in um, Venus's atmosphere. It does make it a place that you shouldn't put on your bucket list for a holiday. So why is it like that? Well, there's a greenhouse, you know, a, a runaway greenhouse effect as exactly as you've said. But I think what's interesting about this piece of research is that people have actually really started seriously looking at why that should have been. You know, it, what, was it um, inevitable that that would happen uh, with a planet that is nearer to the sun than the Earth is? And the answer is apparently not. Um, what uh, this group of scientists have done, and these are uh, people who are based at NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies. So it's not, you know, they're not um, fly-by-night astronomers or anything like that. Um, although most astronomers are fly-by-night, I guess they have to be by definition. Um, so they're, they're, they're looking at, uh, they've looked at the, the things like the topography of Venus, the, the actual structure of the surface. They've looked at um, 
what we know about volcanism on Venus, which is that it was, in fact, we know Venus actually has more volcanoes than any other body in the solar system. So it has had a very active volcanic past. Uh, but they've also looked at the, you know, the kind of um, phenomena that we know stabilizes the Earth's atmosphere. And what is a key to the Earth's atmosphere being stabilized is actually plate tectonics, as I think we've discussed before. Mm. The fact that um, plate tectonics is a is a means of getting carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and into the into the crust uh, of the Earth. It, it, it basically, uh, uh, you know, the, the 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 carbon dioxide either goes directly into the oceans or turns into carbonic acid and, and is absorbed that way. But either way, it eventually finds its way down to the seabed. Um, and you get carbonaceous rocks building up. And I mean, I'm talking now about geological time uh, that is then subducted under the uh, uh, under the continental plates. And, and that is a great way. Some of it comes back up through volcanoes, but it nevertheless stabilizes the carbon dioxide content in the Earth's atmosphere. And so what the modelers who have done this work uh, have uh, have built into their idea is that. Venus actually was a world similar to the Earth for most of its history. Plate tectonics uh, did their thing, kept the atmosphere at a perfect level. Uh, they had surface liquid water, perhaps, and perhaps a stable uh, climate very much like that of the Earth. And then they speculate that um, maybe a billion years ago, or perhaps you know 700 million years or something of that sort, something happened to change that. Uh, and th they they run a whole lot of hypothetical scenarios um, in their modelling and come out with something that actually fits the bill rather well, which is uh, for a 700 million year ago event uh, that would have basically st stopped the the plate tectonics in their tracks and stopped this. Um, you know, this carbon dioxide sink. And what they're suggesting is that some sort of volcanism probably released a huge amount of gas into the atmosphere of Venus. And, it, and effectively, um, you know, that, that, that gas basically was, uh, was, was produced by some intense volcanism which together with the, this highly gaseous envelope also sort of sealed up the surface with, with um, what would have been molten magna, but then solidifying on the surface and stopping the plate tectonics cycle. And, and that happened at a global level. At a global level, yes. Yeah. So there's something really very, very significant, nothing like uh, the kind of things that, for example, we know that there was um, 500 million years on Earth, ago on Earth, there was large-scale outgassing into the atmosphere from from volcanism, uh, which produced something called the Siberian traps, which I think, if I remember rightly, they're lava flows. Uh, and there was a mass extinction as a result of that. But but that's, you know, small beer compared with what evidently must have happened on Venus, perhaps round about the same time or a bit earlier, mm. uh, in order to produce what we see today, which is a planet with a, a runaway greenhouse effect. It's a really interesting idea. The um, that you know, you are once again relying on modelling to get this this impression of a of a nice you know temperate Venus before this event happened, um, but it is uh, you know it, it's based on 
fairly solid research. So it does have a lot going for it, particularly when it's written by people uh, who are in a, one of NASA's actually most eminent planetary sciences institutes. So that, that is amazing. And, and one wonders what it would have been like uh, as a habitable world, if if it was um, you know not dissimilar to Earth in terms of its topography and and water and oceans and that sort of thing, what what compared to us, what would it have been like? Well, it, it would have been much the same, but with the sun slightly bigger in the sky and maybe uh, rather warmer. They're suspecting that um, the surface temperatures might be higher than what they are on Earth. They're talking about twenty to forty degrees Celsius on average for the whole planet, whereas. Here on Earth, the average temperature, uh, I'm pretty sure it's 15 degrees Celsius, the, mm. the average uh, temp temperature for the planet. So that's um, putting it into uh, Fahrenheit terms, that 20 to 40 degrees is, of course, 68 Fahrenheit, which is the 20 degree mark to about 104 degrees Fahrenheit. So which the, is the extremes hot. would be much higher in yeah, some... Yeah, so it would, would, but... would, would have been hotter, but, you know, you still... Only talking about temperatures like what we get in Australia. At times. Yeah, that, very true. Yeah, um, it sounds like it, it would be, would have been quite a livable place. So one now wonders, assuming their theory is spot on, whether or not Venus did have life. Yeah, at some stage, so maybe one day we will have the wherewithal to explore Venus robotically. I can't imagine we'll ever walk on the surface of Venus with those temperatures, but who knows what sort of things we might find with a with a robot strolling around Venus. Oh, here's a fossil. Oh, there's another one. Yeah. <laughs> Although, you know, if, you, if you've got um, super volcanoes sealing the whole surface with magma, there's probably not going to be much left of the fossils that you no, might... I suppose not, but they, yeah. you know, they'll probably find the smoking gun in 1970s Cadillac. That'll be the, that'll be the reason. <laughs> That's what happened. No, um, no it is fascinating, uh, quite amazing, and uh, yeah. that sort of makes you think, well, hey, hey, hang on a second, if that happened at Venus... Yeah, exactly. And we, look, and we look at Mars and go, well, you know, at one stage Mars had possibly liquid oceans, and here's Earth. I mean... Hello, suddenly there are three potential livable planets in our yes. own solar system. And only one left. And only one left. <laughs> yeah. And we're messing it up. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Okay, well, uh, there'll probably be more on this uh, not far down the track, so we'll keep an eye on that story as well because it's well worth reviewing. You're listening to Space Nuts, the podcast with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now, I did send a shout-out earlier to our patrons through patreon.com. Uh, I'd also like to send a shout-out, Fred, to our uh, YouTube followers. We're starting to build quite a little uh, audience in YouTube. We've got uh, 278 subscribers that now listen via YouTube, which oh. is wonderful. Uh, we've decided to set a target. So uh, we would like to reach 1,000 um, because apparently that's, that's a good number. I, I don't really understand YouTube and how the numbers work, but getting to a thousand is um, is something that that benefits the uh, uh, benefits YouTube, obviously, but also benefits Space Nuts. So um, we'll we'll uh, we'll push on. So if you'd like to become a subscriber to Space Nuts via YouTube, just do a search in your YouTube uh, um, app or whatever it is you use, um, and 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 add yourself to our, our growing list of subscribers on the YouTube Space Nuts channel. That would be fantastic. Now, we've got some questions to get through, Fred. We've got a few today. A couple will be easy and one will be easier <laughs> or maybe harder. I don't know. Uh, this one comes from Bentley from Boulder. Bentley, Bentley from Boulder. 
and I'm sure he doesn't have an accent like that because he's in Colorado, uh, <laughs> to the dynamic duo Andrew and Fred. Oh, that's the first time we've been called that and it will be the last time. Uh, would blue-shifting light from distant galaxies be a sign that the universe is beginning to collapse back on itself, i.e. the big crunch or to slow down the big freeze? That's a really interesting question. Uh, light gives a, a lot of, uh, well, the light spectrum gives a lot away when you're making observations in space. So what would a blue shift indicate, Fred? Well, it would it would certainly um, tell you more than that the universe's expansion was slowing down because in order for the light from a galaxy to be blue shifted, uh, the, the galaxy's got to be coming towards you. So uh, you're already in a scenario where the universe is collapsing if you see blue shifts. Um, we do see blue shifts actually uh, for a few nearby galaxies um, where the, the the individual of the mo motion of the galaxy is enough to um, you know, overcome the the expansion of the universe. Uh, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> beg your pardon. It's really only when you start looking at relatively distant galaxies that the expansion of the universe is the most, uh, you know, the the, the most um, obvious feature of the spectrum. And so you get the redshift. Uh, so there are blue shifted galaxies, but they're, uh, in fact, um, what we what we distinguish between is something called the Hubble flow, which is the speed of a galaxy as, as a result of, of the expansion of the universe, and something called the peculiar motion, which is the motion of a galaxy that's peculiar to that galaxy um, and might be caused by the fact that it's got a ne nearby neighbour, <clears throat> like we have with the Andromeda galaxy, uh, and they're pulling together gravitationally. Uh, that would be enough to overcome the, the redshift because the, you know, the distance between these objects is small. So we do see blue shifts, but not on a, what you might call a cosmological scale, not in the wider universe. We only see redshifts. So <clears throat> um, it, there's, there's no danger that suddenly we're going to wake up one day and find all these galaxies that hitherto have had redshifts have now got blue shifts. That's not going to happen. Mm. Uh, but uh, in a in a different universe from ours, one with more mass in it that would cause it to collapse on itself, yes, that's what you would see. You would see blue-shifted galaxies. So a good question, and thank you, Bentley, for that. Could the expansion of our galaxy, uh, of our universe, be um, pushing another one back in on itself? Is that Who knows? That's right, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, there, there are ideas that ours is just one of many universes and maybe they are all jostling for some sort of hyperspace and uh, nudging one another out of the way. Uh, but that is, at the moment, beyond the realms of anything that we can, we can actually do uh, in, t in terms of you know, observational discovery. All you can do is speculate, and our speculations, I think, Andrew, are as good as anybody else's. Yeah, I'll take it. Yeah. Uh, okay, thanks, Bentley. Great question. Now we've got a question from Christopher Pooley. Christa, uh, Christopher's uh, messaged us and uh, had a question on before. Uh, so he, he uh, has another one that we thought we'd tackle. So Professor Google and her research assistant, YouTube, uh, tells me that gamma rays cannot penetrate our atmosphere. However, uh, a lot of scientists feel that a gamma ray burster could sterilise large amounts of planets in a given galaxy, assuming they have life. Uh, they told me that a gamma ray burst is a spinning supermassive star that is collapsing and turning into a black hole, the source of some of the biggest explosions in the universe. My question for Andrew, bah, yeah, I thought I'd read that bit. 
for you, Fred. Uh, is Google right? Does our atmosphere protect us from gamma rays? If so, what about the gamma ray burster? Would it be uh, that these scientists think uh, could turn Earth into a post-apocalyptic wasteland? Love the show. Keep it up. Yes, <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's exciting, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yes. So the, the answer is yes. Um, you know, if you've got a gamma ray burster, which is directing its, uh, its gamma rays at the Earth, and it's not very far away, uh, it does. It strips the atmosphere of, of all its electrons, and suddenly you've got nothing that's breathable, and uh, things start getting pretty bad uh, very quickly. Mm. Um, well, the, the, the reason why we know about gamma ray bursters is interesting in itself, because they were not known until... I think it was the 1970s when uh, various uh, nuclear protection treaties were en enacted, uh, global treaties, uh, banning uh, um, atmospheric nuclear tests. And they were monitored by a fleet of small satellites, which were designed to pick up the gamma rays from anybody who broke the law by detonating a nuclear weapon uh, in the atmosphere. Uh, and uh, what these gamma ray satellites found was not stuff coming from the ground, but stuff coming from space. They detected uh, occasional blasts of gamma rays, which were, um, you know, very mysterious for a long time. Um, in fact, I, I guess uh, it's fair to say that it's really only been in the last 10 to 15 years that astronomers have understood the mechanism by which gamma ray bursters work, and it's um, it, it's more or less as Chris, as Christopher says that if you've got this uh, highly massive star, maybe a neutron star that's that's spinning, uh, and and something happens to it that causes it to collapse into a black hole, then you get this huge burst of energy which doesn't last very long. It's uh, it's a matter of I think the gamma rays are over in a matter of uh, seconds to minutes, but often there is an optical flash, uh, a visible light counterpart, and that's actually very useful, if you can see that, to, to work out how distant these things are. And we know that they are at great distances. They're in very distant galaxies. So for a while, and I think this work still goes on, uh, there was a, a system set up whereby if a gamma ray was detected by one of these uh, special gamma ray detection satellites, then you alert the optical and radio astronomy communities and get them to point to the place where the gamma ray burst came from to see if there's any afterglow. And um, th that has happened and it's been detected. And that's how we know a bit more about the physics of these things. The, the fact is that these gamma ray bursters that have been observed are all a very long way away. So the gamma rays are pretty weak by the time they get uh, to uh, the solar system. But if you did have one in our galaxy uh, and its jet of uh, material was directed in the right direction, sorry, its, it's jet of, of highly uh, energized radiation was in the right direction, then yeah, we could be fried. It could strip the, uh, the planet of its atmosphere. Uh, so... Uh, I think the answer is that both Google and <laughs> and um, and YouTube were right. Okay. Uh, yeah. Gee, thanks, Chris, for giving us one more thing to worry about. <laughs> really appreciate it. But no, it is fascinating. The odds are very, very minuscule, though, aren't they? Yes, they are. They're, they're, they're very slight. There's. Uh, the, I think um, we we've discussed a star recently. My yeah, it rings a bell. Most of my brain is still over the Indian Ocean, so I can't remember it. But I do remember that this was a candidate in our galaxy for a possible gamma ray burster. 
It might be Eta Carini, actually, which is a very large and unstable star. But it turns out that the the axis along which the gamma rays would be directed is not actually pointing at us. So we might we might survive if it does go off. Phew. Yeah, okay. phew. <laughs> Thank you, Chris, for your question. We'll move on to the final question for this episode from... Well, it's a, it's a double bunger because I think this was a discussion that was on the um, uh, podcast group on Facebook. And uh, someone asked a question and someone else responded to it. So I'm going to get credit both Damien Huxley and Brett Campbell for this one. Uh, they say, I wonder if uh, Andrew Dunkley can ask Professor Fred, how does the maths work when looking at gravitational time dilation? If everything else is the same for both uh, planets uh, except for the mass, one is Earth, the other is a 100 or a 1,000 times bigger, what is the change in time? If you were able to watch all the atomic clocks on the GPS satellites as a gravitational wave move past, uh, would the clocks change time? Very, very good question. I love time questions and dilation <laughs> questions. I, just, yeah. I really think this is good stuff. It is good stuff. So... Um... And we actually have had another question, uh, which is very similar to the second part of um, uh, of, of this one. We had another question about um, atomic clocks detecting gravitational waves. Mm. So um, the the question we've got here is a is a as you said, it's a two component one. Um, what's the change in time uh, for you know when when mass goes up by a factor of a hundred or a thousand? I I don't know the answer offhand in terms of the mathematics, but it, it's relatively straightforward. When you look at the equations of general relativity, they are a bit excuse me, they are a bit horrendous in that there are things called metrics which involve matrices of large amounts of numbers, and, uh, and and it all goes into something called tensor calculus, which between you and me, Andrew, and I hope nobody's listening to this, uh, I've never really understood, probably because I've never really read it up properly. But it, what what often happens is these things boil down to relatively straightforward equations. Uh, and um, th so, you know, sometimes it's, it's just a question of proportionality, although there's usually <clears throat> the speed of light involved in there somewhere, which is a constant raised to some enormous power, often c to the fourth, uh, when you look at... Um, uh, gravitational, the, the disturbance, disturbance of space by gravitational waves. So um, I, I can't give an answer to how much gravitation, the time dilates, uh, how different it is from one planet to another, uh, except to say that it is gravitational time dilation because of the Earth is actually a very small amount. You know, you're talking of uh, probably nanoseconds, uh, you, you know, that, that kind of level uh, when you compare, and, and people have compared clocks in aircraft and clocks on the ground and clocks in satellites and clocks on the ground. And it's certainly measurable, <clears throat> excuse me, with modern technology. Um, but, uh, you know, how, how different it is from one planet to another. I don't have that number at my fingertips. I'm actually in some ways more interested in the second part of the question, which is if you were able to watch all the atomic clocks on the GPS satellites as a gravitational wave moved past, would the clocks change time? Mm. <clears throat> and I guess... Because gravitational waves are a distortion of space-time, uh, the answer is yes, but um, I think uh, the numbers would be infinitesimal compared with what we can detect now. Uh, there's a related question from Damien Huxley, uh, 
which is, uh, and he talks about, you know, cesium clocks and strontium clocks with these very, very high frequencies, but I don't think they're anywhere near high enough to detect the gravita the change in time caused by a gravitational wave. And that's uh, an opinion pulled out of the air from what I know about the effect of gravitational waves on, on space, um, which is, you know, absolutely tiny. It's ex exactly as you and I have spoken about before on the LIGO experiment in the USA, these four kilometer long um, uh, interferometer arms, the, they are capable of detecting a movement of the mirror of one ten thousandth of the diameter of a proton. And that is, you know, it's just astonishing. It's about 10 to the minus 19 meters. Um, and so you're, uh, I, you know, any equivalent time distortion would be at a similarly infinitesimal um, level. And I am pretty sure, although I will check this because I know people in the time world, um, I will check it, but I'm pretty sure that we have no way of detecting the kind of uh, change that would occur uh, as a gravitational wave passed. There you go. Well, we managed to knock off 47 questions in one there, I think, <laughs> which was <Yeah>. good. <laughs> We've we caught up now. We've got none left. Yeah, I don't, that'll be the day. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we've still got enough to keep us going for about five years, Andrew. I, I suspect so, yeah. But uh, <laughs> thank you to everybody who asked uh, all those related questions. Uh, much appreciated. And hopefully uh, the answer was, um, well, they, they asked questions because they don't know the answers. So, But they might have had some theories. But um, yes. maybe, maybe we uh, help fill in some blanks for them, Fred. Uh, and thank you. It's always a pleasure. We, we covered a lot of ground today and some really fascinating um, topics as well. So uh, thank you very much. As, as jet lagged and dazed as you are. <laughs> I am. Um, yeah, uh, I'll, 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 of course, will not remember any of this conversation. <laughs> so well, it's a good thing I recorded it. It is just as well, yeah. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Good to talk to you, and we'll speak again next week. We will indeed. Uh, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large, joins us every week here on Space Nuts, as, as do you, and keep spreading the word. The more, the merrier. And we will catch you next time on another edition of Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Tights.com.